Hi, I'm Natalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where we discuss the real, eccentric, and complex history of math. In each episode, we unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. Today, Ioana is back to talk about Georg Cantor, and this episode will attempt to answer the following questions. What does it mean to call somewhere home? What's the worst way to spend a honeymoon? What does either of this have to do with math? Let's find out. Hi, everyone. We are back again with Joanna, and today we are going to talk about infinity. So I thought that we could start by talking about our own perspectives on infinity. Listeners, as you're thinking about when you hear the word infinity, what does that mean to you? Joanna, you had some really cool insights to share, like your poem that we were talking about. So when we talk about infinity, what are the things that come to mind for you? Hi again, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me back. I've been looking forward to these episodes because I'm really excited about infinity and all that it might mean. So yes, when we're having our chat, I remember the poem, the Greek poet called Dasu Delivabetis. And he was saying something like, not a professional translation, but the gist of it was, as a child, I would come out in the garden and lie down and look at the sky and look at the stars. And just looking at the stars, I felt panicked. And ever since, I feel the time will not be enough. And of course, there's no theory that says that stars are infinite. But for us, in a way, we see something in the sky and that thing is not something that we can reach or fully comprehend and so on. So I think it gives us that sense of infinity in that sense that there's so much out there that whatever we do, it will never have enough time to explore it or live as many lives as we would like to and so on. So, yeah, I think that idea is very closely related to infinity in my head. I love that. As we were talking about that before, you know, and I know we're going to get into this in other episodes or maybe this one, but thinking about when we were talking about there's not enough time and you think about time being infinite, like we don't have infinite time, but time is infinite. And that also kind of got us going down a rabbit hole as far as how do you quantify time? Because how do you define a moment? You can define a minute, you can define an hour, a day, but you know, there are infinite moments that exist, which is really cool. Also, the other thing too, is we were talking about this, like my thing of infinity, I was talking to a friend a few years ago, and she was telling me when she was tiny, and you could tell this is how she knew she was going to be a math professor, I guess, or everybody could have predicted this. But she was tiny, she was a little kid, and someone put a teddy bear in front of two mirrors. And she looked and there were infinite teddy bears in each mirror, just going forever. And it was a moment for her that was just groundbreaking and exciting to see infinitely many teddy bears in this and the concept of infinity for a small child, like how cool that is. It's very interesting that she made that observation in such an age, because definitely two mirrors mirroring into each other is something we can actually see infinity in a way. Not fully, but I think it's a pretty close case of infinity. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm going to say another thing, too. So a couple of things that have been knocking around in my head were, well, first off, the Mobius strip, right? The classic infinity symbol is one thing, obviously. But the second thing is the concept of the snake eating its own tail, the Ouroboros, where we think about wholeness and the concept of infinity there. 
And as I was thinking about it, we just got through your poem about time and all of that. And Loki season two just came out and we've got Mobius and we've got Ouroboros all thinking about infinity as it pertains to time. I don't want to put any spoilers just in case people haven't seen it yet. But one of the most hilarious things for me from Loki was that this guy spends infinite time learning like quantum physics, basically. That's how he chooses to spend his time. But, you know, also like, what would you do if you had infinite time like he does? It's a cool thing to think about, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so many pop culture, sci-fi books and series and movies that started dealing with this more and more. And I think it shows the fascination we all have perhaps with these concepts of infinity and time and so on. We had this conversation about where we've seen infinity over time. You had some great insights on historically where we've seen infinity. Tell us a little about that. So I think infinity, it's something that people could understand quite early on. The word in Greek, apiron, apiron in more Greek pronunciation, comes from the word end, peras, and a, which kind of takes away the property. So it's the no ending. And of course, these concepts play into philosophy, play into maths, play into theology even, because there is a lot in various religions about the infinity of the deity. And that's a concept that we can understand quite young. If someone asks what's the largest number we can think of, suddenly it, it occurs to us that you can just keep adding one and it keeps growing. So it plays into many parts of life and from quite early on. When you're small, you say stuff like, I love you, infinity. And it's like, you know that there's no more than that. But is there? I think that that's going to be part of potentially our discussion today and over the next couple episodes. As we start to talk about someone that was very influential and prolific in actually bringing the concept and the theory of infinity to a wider audience, and that is Georg Cantor. So let's talk about what people had to say about him. So David Hilbert, who is an English mathematician, if you've ever heard of Hilbert's Infinite Hotel, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but his work in geometry had the greatest influence since Euclid. And he had lots of contributions in areas of math and physics. And he described Cantor's work as the finest product of mathematical genius and one of the supreme achievements of purely intellectual human activity. I think that's really awesome. Hilbert loved Cantor's work. We'll see why it was contributing to his work. But there were some other mathematicians that had other thoughts on that. I'll say the nasty thoughts they had, and then I'll say a bit about each one of them, so that we can get really to feel like the vehement critics, for example, Poincaré, called Cantor's work a grave disease, <laughs> chronicled Cantor a charlatan and a corrupter of youth. Wittgenstein thought what Cantor was doing was laughable nonsense. So these are very heavy accusations. Who were those people that were saying those really awful things about Cantor's work? Henri Poincaré was a mathematician, theoretical physicist, a philosopher of science. He contributed to several fields People even say he was the last polymath, so his contributions were quite significant in several areas. Kronecker, 
was actually even Cantor's supervisor for his doctoral studies. But he's very well known for this remark, God created the integers, all else is the work of man. And he believed that there shouldn't be any infinite quantities in maths. It should only be about finite values. And he even refused to consider transcendental numbers that now are clearly used. And Wittgenstein was one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. And one of his famous quotes is that the limits of my language means the limits of my world. So they were all well established in their areas. And having such heavy criticism coming from them caused several problems to counter his work and so on, as we're going to see. What's interesting to me, I want to talk a little bit about Kronecker and Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein, you just said the limits of my language means the limits of my world. He's a philosopher. Why is he limiting himself? The whole purpose of infinity is that it's unbounded. There are no limits, right? He's literally, as a philosopher, limiting himself and calling it laughable nonsense. And I think that's super interesting because all the philosophers that I know, not that I know many philosophers that are sitting there just thinking about things, but, you know, I mean, working in education, you do, you do meet some philosophers. That's interesting to me that he is putting a limit on himself for seemingly no reason. And also what you just said, Kroniker, God created the integers, all else is the work of man. I now want to go read more about this because if God created the integers, right, and this is the universal set, the integers, and everything under the integers is a subset, then by transitivity, wouldn't God also have created everything else? So I think that's really interesting. I love our conversations. There's never a time that we talk that I don't want to instantly be like, I need to stop talking to you to go think about this. <laughs> I love that about our chats as well. And I think that we have stumbled across some really interesting people and their work or their even disagreements with each other raise very interesting questions. But I do think it's intriguing that there was such heavy accusations of what could a mathematician have done to attract so much hatred, so much criticism, and that it opened such a big new page for math. I think that's one of my favorite things about math in general is that right now today we think about math and what do we think about? All right, guys, let's go do the quadratic formula. And we sit there and we think of people covered in chalk, just writing on the board, like these stereotypes of the like dull mathematics professors. But even back in Pythagoras's day, right, where he formed the brotherhood and he drowned the guy potentially. There's the contention there. There's the thing with Fermat where he and Descartes, you know, where he's talking about it and it's like he's groping about in the shadows and that ended up having this whole thing. You know, Cardano stabbing someone in the face. You know, it's it's like there's this contention throughout math the whole time. It's never like, all right, guys, like here's a peaceful story. That's kind of the whole purpose of the podcast. But yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's like, and this is my favorite thing. People feel some kind of way about the thing they're passionate about. And I love that so many people are passionate about math that, you know, really just so we could have the privilege, frankly, of being like, wow, this is really boring. But at the time it wasn't right. 
So let's talk a little bit about Cantor. So he was born in 1845. So, you know, if we think sort of around the time of Lewis Carroll with the Euclid feelings and stuff like that. And he was born in St. Petersburg, Russia. But he moved to Germany, him and his family, when he was 11 because of his father's ill health. And so interestingly enough, he's commonly referred to as a German mathematician. Yeah, I was reading a bit more about him and even his parents don't not have any kind of direct German descent. There's some Danish and Russian descent, but no German, aside from spending most of his life in Germany. So the German mathematician was not German in the conventional sense, but rather from upbringing in Germany. And then, of course, we had the conversation about ourselves and me being born in Cyprus, but I live in England now. And you coming from Belize, but now you live in Texas. So what is the thing, what that's the defining property? What is the thing that defines us in that sense? It's so true. And some of the things I was thinking about was when I was in Belize and growing up there, for sure, I was definitively from Belize. And there would be no question of that. But when I moved to the U.S. and when I moved to Texas, everybody here instantly knew she's not from here whether it was my accent or whatever it was. Now I've been here a while and it's still evident. You know, it's so funny. My husband tells me, <laughs> he tells me that I pronounce some words slightly different than he's used to hearing. So it's, he says it's not very often, but when it is, you know, he knows that's different. So there's still, for as long as I've been here, there's still that thing that says, oh, she's not from here. But when I go back to Belize to visit, I'm kind of not from there either because I've assimilated here. So it is truly what defines us. Who can claim us? What country can we claim? So I thought that was interesting too. And we have examples from other famous scientists like Einstein or Gödel, who both acquired new citizenships and needed a new home country. They were in Europe around the time of World War II and they went to the US. So they acquired new citizenships and so on. So Again, what defines us, who who claims us, and so on. Right, right. And I think, you know, we've seen other mathematicians, and none of them come to mind in the moment. But I know we've talked about it before, where this has happened, where it's like, he's from here. No, he's from here. And even in the calculus wars, <laughs> I love that, the calculus wars. But, you know, with Leibniz and Newton, all of their contention was around which country could claim it. Even India came in and said, well, no, we actually came up with it first, right? And, you know, all the fights and stuff like that. I think it's really interesting, too. Again, you know, people feeling passionate about things. So Cantor was the oldest of six children, and he was a violinist, and he wanted to make it into a career, but his merchant father would not allow this. So... He was not allowed to do what he wanted, and now we have multiple infinities. <laughs> so maybe parents are sometimes right. I don't know. <laughs> I hope not too many uh, teenagers are going to be upset by this statement. But interesting that his mom was a violinist, and that didn't seem to be a problem for them. His desire to do this for a living was definitely halted by his dad's desire to pursue engineering. But in the end, he did not fulfill that either. I was thinking about this as we were talking, and there's this, you know, huge intersection between music and math. And I love, first of all, that like the violin has like the little integral symbol. So, you know, there, see, he was doing math. <laughs> but it's interesting to me that 
his dad didn't see the value in the music. You know, when I was a wee tot and I was starting college, because apparently that is the definition of a wee tot is it's starting college. But, you know, I actually was really into theater and my mom wasn't that thrilled about it. And frankly speaking, I learned so much about theater that really shaped who I became today. If you think about some of the tenets that you hear all the time, the show must go on. You think about what that means and the work ethic that has to go into that. So I was a backstage person. I love like sound and lights and building the set and giving the audience that emotional feeling through the environment. I acted once, but I couldn't wait to get back behind the scenes again. To give the audience that experience, the amount of hard work that goes into it. And frankly, like especially, you know, in the last three years, how many people have really turned towards content creation, entertainment, like the arts are so important and the hard work that goes into creating it. You know, when you think of math or when you think of music or when you think of the arts, like none of them are easy. All of them are valuable. And so I thought this stood out to me and was so interesting that his dad, you know, and how many parents have we seen? I think Dodgson was another one whose dad or whose parents didn't want him to do what he wanted to do. So it's really interesting to think about that. Absolutely. And is it stereotypical or is it actually if people tend to think more about creative professions? by creative and more artistic, perhaps, they receive a bit more skepticism than if someone says, I want to be, I don't know, a biologist, maybe not many people would object. But of course, there are some people that just go with the flow and maybe don't create too much obstacles or to say, let's see how things go. I think I fall in that category. I ever wanted to do anything very uh, uh, rebellious, but I did have my mini venture into various groups of more artistic pursuit. And of course, now I'm doing that as a side thing as well. But like, look at your book. You bring the voice of the mathematician into it and you make it into a more, I don't want to say the word usable, but like more friendly, accessible to everybody. It's written for a younger audience, sure, but like anyone can enjoy it. That's special in and of itself. The thing that's also special is Asuka's art, right? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose you're right in the sense that you can evolve into kind of a storyteller where you tell what happened, but in, in a way where it's very engaging and with the Asuka's illustrations as well to really bring those stories to life. So I suppose you are right in that we all have several aspects to our personality and, and maybe we don't acknowledge them until they manifest themselves in a different way, like you creating this whole podcast series and being able to communicate all these stories to your audience over the years. Well, I know we went down a rabbit hole, but I guess we should get back to Cantor since this is his episodes. So Cantor studied in a variety of places in Darmstadt, Zurich, Berlin, and Gottingen, which is one of the most renowned centers for math. He spent his academic career at the University of Halle. And that's where I think Kronecker was his supervisor there, which we'll mention more in a moment. But I love now what we're going to talk about, because we're going to talk about his marriage to Valley Gutman in 1874. It's said that their marriage was born of deep love and affection. And she was a very kind of artistically inclined, cheerful person. And he received her support over their life together, which was 
really important because he was developing some major mathematical concepts. So having someone that's able to support you through this, I think it's really amazing. Thinking about like Erdish and just the fact that he would go hang out with all these different people and, you know, like his personality was his personality, also beloved by everybody. But I think like you're exactly right, you know, having the sunny personality with the more serious, you know, let us put pen to paper type of a thing of this particular case is for sure important. And they had six children and Cantor's father gave them some inheritance, which allowed them to build a family home, which is always a good start to a family life. (laughs) Should we say about their honeymoon or... Yeah, yes, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Go ahead, because this is one of my favorite things. I'm cracking up. So he spent much of his honeymoon with the Valley Goodman, chatting about maths with Richard Dedekind, who's another notable mathematician of the time. So why Dedekind? Who was at the same place as they were, I'm not sure. They had known each other for two years by that point. So I don't know, they had six kids eventually so they did do other things they not just talk about maths but yeah the thing that cracks me up is I'm trying to imagine this it's like all right you know I'm a serious mathematician I found this person with a super sunny personality love her getting married let's go on our honeymoon to like enjoy life you know live our best life And I can only imagine that it's like, all right, we're at dinner or whatever thing is happening. And maybe I happen to mention something, you know, oh, well, something about blah, 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 infinity sets. And then maybe there's like a guy at the next table that's like, did you say infinity sets? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, forget the fact I'm on my honeymoon. Pull up a chair. Let's talk some math. Honestly, it's amazing. But in reality, I find it funny because it's true. Because every time my husband and I go on vacation, I'm always like interested in talking to everybody else. (laughs) But that's how you meet the best people and get the best stories, you know? So poor him, but I definitely sympathize with his wife (laughs) in this case. Definitely. And then... What happened with Cantor and Dedekind? So Cantor managed to get a position offered to Dedekind by the University of Halle. But Dedekind declined that position and Cantor took that very negatively and did not want to continue their collaboration with Dedekind. Oh my gosh. Now I want to dig in further to that. Like, did he talk to Dedekind before trying to get him this position? Or was he just like, hey, bestie, I found you a job. Come work with me. You know, how did he, (laughs) like, how did that happen? I I mean, because if he just went off and did it on his own, then like, dude, don't do that. But, you know, if he put his neck out, did all these things, and then Dedekind turned him down, like, you know, yeah, I can see why, but uh, hilarious. But all of that to say, he's this professor at the University of Halle. And he was quite successful. And so he wanted to move to a more prestigious university, the one in Berlin, really. But he was thwarted, which we'll talk about in a second. But that also brings me to think about how shady is that if he knew he wanted to move? Like, was he trying to get Dedekind to replace him at the University of Halle? Or was it like, come join this university and then I'm going to dip? Like, <laughs> just... That's an question i don't have the exact timeline on that did he ask him and once he wouldn't come then he thought i want to move as well i don't know 
You know, one of my friends, and I told you this before we got on, but I've been cracking up about it for about the past two days, I think. But now I'm going to say it so it's immortalized in the podcast. But one of my friends was telling me that he had a job and he got a different job offer with 25% more pay and everything and he was going to take it. But his boss said, no, you know, buddy, if you like stay, whatever, we'll give you the pay, whatever it is. And he's like, all right. He's like, but stay here and, and work with me. And then two months later, his boss dipped to go elsewhere. And I've been cracking up about that for two days because of the way he told the story, not because of the situation. But, you know, I wonder, like, is that exactly what happened here? It's like, hey, come over here and join this thing. And maybe Dedekind like knew in the background that he was wanting to move. Maybe they'd had conversations about it. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, it's just interesting. So talk a little bit about Kronecker, how he managed to thwart Cantor in this endeavor. So Kronecker worked closely with Cantor. He was his his advisor and so on. Despite knowing like the genius Cantor was, he had no faith in his subsequent work on, on, on infinite sets. So Cantor was describing the sets giving their particular properties, but he did not give examples. And Kronecker found the lack of examples annoying, like to the point that he produced accusations for the validity of Cantor's work and possibly, or my understanding is more than possible, that he interjected Cantor's acceptance at the University of Berlin. As we were talking about this and thinking about this, I was wondering, you were talking about like the examples and things like that. I wonder if he took a page out of Fermat's book. What proofs did he submit? Like, it seems that proofs would be sufficient. Why the kerfuffle over examples? And I know like we talked a little bit about abstract examples during this. We don't need to have sort of a more general definition of a set. If you think about like Dodgson and Euclid, this is the same time period. So if we have one plus three equals four, that is what it is. You know, why do we need A dot B means something else, which I think is the plight of every math student ever. But, you know, this is sort of looking into at the top of the episode where we talked about what Kronecker said and, you know, the finite stuff and things like that. Certainly, like that would make sense why he felt this way, thinking about the time period and everything else. But it wasn't just Kronecker and several other mathematicians, like I said, that got upset with Kant's theory. So even theologians got upset. They thought it was a blasphemy to say that there are comparable infinities. They thought God is infinite and the supreme being. And how can there be something that's more infinite than something else? And Kantor was religious himself and he took that very hard that he was accused of blasphemy. That's interesting, too. I think we think today it's like, you know, there's this separation of like science and religion. But like, really, it's been math that's sort of been at odds for the whole time. If you think of like Cardano in Italy and you think of all of that, it was like, you know, well, no, it's the gods that decide all these things. Right. And please don't figure out gambling. Don't do the dice and everything else because it should be the gods or God that decides this. I think that's really interesting here, too, because we're thinking about, again, infinite being limitless, being all these things. Why do we want to limit ourselves? Why are we placing, you know, this limit on ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that's intuitively there. And there are the infinity that we all understand very easily. The infinity we perceive once we learn to count. And it's 
the numbers go on forever, we cannot answer the question, what is the largest number that exists? But an interesting thought that I heard a few years ago was that there might be no largest number as such, but there will be a largest number that you will have ever used in your own life, which is a very interesting thought. Oh my gosh, no, I want to think about that because <laughs> I'm like, no, I want to go one more. <laughs> I think one to all of them. So counting numbers or natural numbers are all the positive integers. And we cannot think of the largest number possible. Whether we think or say, we can always add one and get an even larger number. And just to loosen this up, all the positive integers means we start at one. We don't include zero in that. So one, two, three, four. One of the things is that when I was small, I would go to sleep and they would tell me count sheep. And I'd be like, okay. And so I would count. And one of my favorite things about counting was that I could always add one more. I would never run out of numbers. Like one night, you know, again, when I was tiny, I was like, I'm, what if I did like the alphabet and I got to Z and I was like, well, now what? Now I got to go what? A, A, B, B. That's stupid. Then I went back to numbers. And again, how I guess you become a math nerd is things like, you know, my friend with a teddy bear in the mirrors, me counting sheep and being like, I love this numbers. Yeah, it's fun. Absolutely. Yeah. A bit more thinking on the experience of infinity. So apparently there is 200 billion trillion stars. That's the nearest thing that we can get to infinity, I think, looking at the sky. The point is that intuitively, infinity is something we can all sense in a way. We all have some experience of that and some understanding of what it means. This is probably tangentially related, but not necessarily in the same way. But one time I was talking to my aunt, I don't remember where we were, but she said, you know, nothing makes you feel like one of God's smallest creatures than to be in the ocean without a set of fins on. When you're talking about the stars and you're looking up and you're imagining that, like, yeah, you really feel like you're one small thing. And how are there so many stars and it's so big out there? My husband and I scuba dive. And when we're in the ocean, I have had to take off fins in the ocean and put them on, you know, and stuff like that. And if you have all your gear on and you're trying to paddle and heck, even if you don't, but you don't have your fins on, first of all, it's almost impossible to move because you've got so much weight. But when you look out at the blue and you see the just the blue, that's another concept of infinity, I think, that is I don't know what word I want here, but that's another place I think that we can also see it. Not just the stars, but the ocean as well. Yeah, I suppose if you're yeah very in the middle, uh, like uh, if you don't see much shore, it does feel endless, sense of endlessness. What I was thinking about was, you know, we scuba dive. So when we're under the water and we look out to the blue, maybe there's a reef on the on one side of us, but looking out the other to the blue and just seeing. But you're exactly right. Like if you are on a boat in the middle of the ocean somewhere and there's no shore in sight and all you see is ocean, you know, certainly that is that, you know, what you're describing as well, which, again, I love our conversations because we always have different perspectives, but meaning the same thing. Yeah, I suppose that's what makes maths an element of maths that it has so many shared properties that even if you come from different experiences, then you have always some common ground to talk about. Yeah, so this is like the concept of infinity that we can understand intuitively and so on, but of course 
Cantor discovered multiple infinities, and that's our kind of like enterprise here to try to explain the different types of infinity and how many of the infinities that exist around us or in our brain mostly are the same. And when do we actually start getting different infinities? Because that's also an interesting concept. So I want to ask you a question. Prepare yourself. And listeners, y'all think about this too. Which do you think is greater? Like which one has more elements? The natural numbers or the even numbers? So our brain and our intuition screams the naturals because clearly the naturals contain all the even numbers. So the naturals, one, two, three, four, five, and so on to infinity, the even numbers, two, four, six, eight, and so on. So all the even numbers are contained inside the natural numbers. So our intuition says the naturals. However, I will invite you to a thought experiment. So if we had infinite time and nothing else to do with our lives, so we decided to stay recording this episode forever, well, that would mean we would never get to the audience, so let's not do that. But let's entertain that thought for a moment. And during that infinite time, you keep telling me different natural numbers. And what I do is multiply each of those numbers by two hence making it even, and saying back to you, would I ever run out of things to say? And the answer is clearly no. So what we demonstrate with this thought experiment is a one-to-one correspondence between the naturals and the evens. So for each natural number, we can always find an even to match. So these two sets have the same infinity. We will call these the Countable infinity, which is a very weird name for infinity. (laughs) The infinity that's in a one-to-one correspondence with the naturals. And could we find more infinite sets with the same infinity? And, you know, certainly we could, because if you were to multiply by three or five or a hundred or a thousand, all of these are multiples, but how can it be the same as the number of naturals? And you're talking about countable, and we'll maybe mention some other types of infinity a bit later, but like all the things we've talked about so far have been countable. You think of the stars in the sky, you can count one star, two star, three stars. Like you don't, we're not going to count to infinity. You think about the teddy bear in the mirror, you know, you can count all of those. You think about the counting of sheep, you know, we can do all of that. All of these are countable sets. As far as this is concerned, the sets of what you just described with that thought experiment, the evens and the naturals, you know, these are both infinite. And Dedekind was discussing newly emerging set theory with Cantor. And I guess this was before they had their falling out. But they agreed that a collection of objects called a set can be either finite or infinite. Yes. So have you ever played the game, the card game set? Yes, I have it in our game closet. I love it. I absolutely love it as well. So just to say quickly, I mean, that could be a lot of fun. And I don't know if people like a bit geeky games, I would definitely recommend it. (laughs) So 81 unique cards. They have either one, two or three shapes and three different options of a shape, of a filling and of a color. 
and you lay them on the table and in batches of say 12 and you just stare at them really intensely until you spot a set that carries certain properties for the purposes of the game which in a way is similar i said it's a collection of distinct objects so they really did that very well that all the cards are distinct I just love your description of the rules of the game, which is you lay the cards out and then you look at them intensely until you find a set and then you're like, set! <laughs> but 100%, it is such a fun game. You walk into people playing set, you just look at like four or five people looking at the table, not doing anything else. <laughs> oh, there's no dive, there's no pawns and move them around or, you know, you just look at them until you're spotting. And I love that you can also play it solitaire as well. I haven't tried that, but actually, why not? It's basically the same rules. You know, I think there are a couple nuances differently, but I like playing games. My husband likes playing games too, but not as much as me. And so I was like, all right, let's play set. And then he's like, no, that's okay. So I end up playing set solitaire all the time. (laughs) But mostly it's just kind of a relaxing exercise to be like, look at the cards, find the set, look at the cards, find the set. It's fun. (laughs) I like I haven't tried that. I think I would definitely try that when the working hours are not matching. That's a great idea. Yeah. It's so relaxing. It's so peaceful. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like. And also training your brain a bit to spot things. So, yeah. So, so far, what we've kind of explored is the concept of one to one correspondence with the natural numbers, and that we actually have infinite sets of that comes from infinity because we can multiply those natural numbers by any number and this kind of one-to-one correspondence to infinity. It would be nice to acknowledge that whilst Cantor's set theory faced a lot of harsh criticism when it was starting, now it's taught even first-year maths degree all over the world. So of course we didn't get to the part that infuriated Cantor's critics, but we will have more proofs coming up. But this countable infinity and this set theory is there in all the maths. Not all, but I'm guessing most around the world. Well, awesome. We will definitely get into that in the next episode. And again, thank you so much. Love talking to you about stuff like I always do. I'm going to drop your socials in the description so that folks can find you wherever you are. And also, if you haven't checked out Joanna's book, definitely get it. They're amazing. So we will talk to you again soon, continuing to talk about infinity. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Infinitely Irrational. Can't get enough of the math and the fun? Visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for the math and research behind the stories. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email at podcast at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one.